This is Science Friday. I'm Charles Bergquist. And I'm Flora Lichtman. Do you remember the story of Balto? In 1925, the town of Nome, Alaska was facing a diphtheria outbreak. Balto was a sled dog and a very good boy who helped deliver life-saving medicine to the people in the town. Balto's twisty tale has been told many times, including in a 90s animated movie in which Kevin Bacon played Balto. Which way, Balto? Which way? Which way? Uh, this way. But last month, scientists uncovered a new side of Balto. They sequenced his genes and discovered he wasn't exactly who they expected. The study was part of a project called Zoonomia, which aims to better understand the evolution of mammals and our own genome by looking at the genes of other mammals from narwhals to aardvarks. Here to tell us more are my guests. Eleanor Carlson is an associate professor in bioinformatics and integrative biology at UMass Chan Medical School and director of vertebrate genomics at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. She's based in Boston, Massachusetts. Katie Moon is a postdoctoral researcher at UC Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz, California. Beth Shapiro is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz, California. Welcome all to Science Friday. Thanks for having us. Katie, you were the leader of the pack on the Balto study. Were there any surprises that jumped out of Balto's DNA? Yeah, I think not surprising, but I think, you know, you never really know when you sequence something's genome what you're going to find. And I think what was cool about Balto is that we had some ideas about what we'd find, and a lot of those were confirmed with the genomics. But we also found some really neat other things which we didn't predict. One of my favorite things is that we were able to predict his physical phenotype from his genotype. So everything from, you know, his coat coat coloration to his eye color to um you know, skin thickness, you know, muscle development, things like that. You know, that was really cool because you can imagine why a dog like Balto would have needed those things where he was living. So he had genes that might have made him better adapted to pulling a sled in very cold conditions? Exactly right. You know, body weight things, joint formation, coordination, things like that. You know, so uh, that's exactly what you would expect uh, from Balto and his population. You know, the larger group of sled dogs, you know, that were pulling these uh, large weights through icy conditions 100 years ago. What about Balto's pedigree? How does how does he compare to modern sled dogs? One of the really cool things about looking at a genome from an animal that lived 100 years ago is that we can't really think of it as what of today's breeds are in Balto because Balto lived before today's breeds existed, you know? So he is kind of that ancestral population and his ancestry, parts of his ancestry have also contributed to the ancestry of what we think of as dog breeds today. So it's it's kind of a hard question to answer. What what breeds is he? Because it's it's not really the right question to ask. He lived before the breeds. So he's kind of representative of all of them together. So one of the things that I got really excited about looking at Balto and Balto's data was that Balto was actually called a Siberian Husky. And his, you know, epic sled run in Alaska is one of the things that might have inspired them to establish the Siberian Husky breed. So having an opportunity to look at Balto's DNA and compare that to Siberian Huskies today and try to figure out what their actual relationship was, was something that I was quite curious to find out. And what we saw was that, you know, when you establish a sled dog breed, like a breed like we do today, 
you create these closed populations of dogs. So these are dogs where only Siberian Huskies only get to have puppies with other Siberian Huskies. And so we found two things. We found one that Balto had a lot more genetic diversity in, in his population than it is, is in the modern sled dog breeds today, including the Siberian Husky. And also that it looked like he was probably um, had fewer changes in his genome that might have been damaging to his health. So it might have been kind of overall a healthier population as well. Katie, how did you fetch Balto's DNA in the first place? <laughs> Great pun. Well, so he, he's actually on display at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. And, uh, you know, you can still see him today. And his taxidermied remains are in a glass case. So we actually grabbed a little piece of his underbelly skin. So we gave him a little tummy rub and uh, <laughs> extracted the DNA in our, in our clean lab here in Santa Cruz. So, you know, we have a clean lab where no modern DNA goes into and we keep everything spick and span. And we extracted it, you know, with some in-house preparation, you know, we've made a lot of uh, leaps forward with ancient DNA extractions and, and preparation techniques. He actually ended up being quite well preserved and uh, not as damaged as you would expect. But certainly more damaged than if we were to get DNA from a dog that's alive today. Uh, we know that as soon as an animal dies or a plant, the DNA in all of its cells starts getting chopped up into smaller and smaller pieces until eventually they're so small that you can't recover them or make use of them. So even though Balto was only about 100 years old, his DNA was chopped up into really tiny fragments, like only about 60 letters long or so compared to modern DNA that might be hundreds of millions of wow. letters long after you extract it, which is why we had to use that special clean facility that Katie was talking about. So he was really well preserved compared to the things like mammoths and giant bears that we often work with, <laughs> but but not as well preserved as the dogs that Eleanor gets yes, to work yes, with. Yes, yes, I know, Beth. Your life is so much harder than mine is with your DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor, the Balto study used Zoonomia data as well. Will you tell me more about that project? What is the mission? Yeah, so the Zoonomia project is a big project where we sequence the genomes, the DNA, from hundreds of different mammalian species. So we had 240 different species of placental mammals in there. Uh, we didn't include all the crazy mammals from Australia that are marsupials because they're basically just too weird. They're too far away. So we were focused on the, the placental mammals, things that were reasonable. You know, you don't want to get too crazy. Uh, and so we sequenced their DNA. We And lots of other people did too. We basically took advantage of these big public data sets. And then we aligned all the genomes. And what we do by aligning all the genomes, it means that we can look at a given position in the DNA. So you take a human. A human's genome is about 3 billion bases or letters long. And once we've aligned it, we can actually look at a given position in the human genome and see what it looks like in every other species in our data set. So we can see what that position looks like in a dog, looks like in a bat, looks like in a mouse. And that allows us to kind of understand how things are changing over evolutionary time. Has Zunomi revealed any like hidden superpowers of animals that we didn't know about before? I'm getting more and more interested in, in superpowers of mammals, but I hadn't really thought about hidden ones. We, we sort of actually go the other direction where we've observed that animals have amazing superpowers and we're like, how do they do them? The biggest challenge in genomics is that we've gotten very, very good at sequencing DNA. We can sequence, you know, every individual very easily. We can look at all their A's, C's, G's, and T's, figure out what order they go in. Um, we can even do it for ancient DNA like mammoths and balto. 
the problem is, is we don't actually understand what most of it means. We don't know how to read out that string of ACs, Gs, and Ts and actually say, hey, that's what this piece of DNA is doing, and this is why it's important. And so by sequencing the genomes of a lot of species and then also going and studying those species and understanding how they're different, we can start analyzing that those two things together, the phenotype of the animals and the, the sequence of the genome, and try to figure out which parts of the genome are actually giving them those, those exceptional abilities. Beth, what about DNA from extinct animals? Is there any plan to incorporate ancient DNA into Zoonomia? Absolutely. So I think one of the really awesome innovations that comes from Zoonomia is, is this alignment, the, the lining up of all of the genomes from these various different mammalian species. So what is on chromosome one from a human is not necessarily on the same chromosome from a bat or from a bear or from a cat. And so you have to use really sophisticated statistics to be able to line them up so that you can compare these sequences because they've been sort of shuffled around the genome by evolution, recombination over you know the many tens of millions of years of mammalian evolution. So now that we have this base alignment of all these different things, we can start sticking in other species that we don't have. And that could include extinct species where we can generate genome sequences from things like mammoths and saber-toothed cats and giant bears and, and begin to ask where they are different from their closest related living species using this same sort of structure that Eleanor has been talking about, but also filling in some of the gaps that aren't there. You know, I, I think it's been pointed out several times now, and Eleanor, you really do have to explain yourself. There is no raccoon, for example, in the Xenomia alignment. <laughs> I know, I know about the missing raccoon. <laughs> Actually, it's really funny because we didn't even think about the raccoon until the press conference that Eleanor had and people kept bringing it up. And I've just been teasing Eleanor about this ever since. I think a bunch of people have as well. So why people are so fascinated by the raccoon, I don't understand, but it's, it's not there. Are, are there animals on your bucket list? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in species that are, are struggling. So species that are on the endangered species list and how we might be able to use the sort of resource to identify species that we should be focusing conservation efforts on. And so I, I think that it would be useful to generate genome sequences from species that we often don't think about, the, those that don't immediately come to mind, because these are the ones that um, maybe we need to be focusing on from a preservation of biodiversity perspective. I don't know, Eleanor, do you have a bucket species? The ones I'm most interested in are the ones that we don't know anything about. So one of the things I learned working on this project was that, you know, you'd think that sequencing a whole lot of mammals would be really easy. You just go down to the zoo and you work with the zoo people and you get a sample of DNA and then you sequence it and then you've got your genome made. And it turned out what I discovered during the course of this project was that most species, including most mammals, don't tolerate being kept in captivity. They don't do well, they don't reproduce, they don't have babies, and the, it, often they just can't survive. They just don't do well in that environment. And that includes, for example, like most bats, like except for a couple of fruit bats, most bats just don't, don't do well in captivity. And so in order to actually study these species, somebody's got to go out to where they're living and find them in the wild and get samples from them. And I'm really curious to know what's out there that we don't even know that we're missing yet. Beth, you mentioned conservation work. How can this genetic data tell us about whether a species is in trouble? Like, How does that work? It's a great question. One of the 
papers. There were there were actually 11 papers that were published together as part of this Zoonomia package, and I was fortunate to be involved in a few of them. One of those was to ask whether if we just had one genome sequence from one individual, we could learn something from that one genome sequence that would help us to prioritize our focus of conservation. Obviously, we're in the midst of a biodiversity crisis, an extinction crisis, and there is not enough money, resources, and time to go around to focus on all of the species that we need. And there are many species that are listed as data deficient, where we just don't have the ecological survey data, the genomic data, any knowledge about these species as to whether they might be endangered. And it's easy to imagine how if you had a bunch of genomes from a bunch of individuals, you could ask how much diversity is in that population? Or is that population really in trouble? Are they inbreeding? Are there mutations at these sites that seem to be important for other reasons? But with just one genome, we were curious, is there is there any information in there that can really help us to focus, to do triage for this conservation prioritization? And the answer we were able to figure out is yes. In the absence of any other information, we can use certain features of a single genome, things like um, whether the two chromosomes, because every animal has one chromosome from mom and one chromosome from dad, if they're the same as each other for a long time in that genome, that means that there's inbreeding going on, recent inbreeding, the population size is small, and that can hint that there might be a problem. Or if there are mutations that are happening in these parts of the genome that are identified, as Eleanor was talking about before, as constrained, where mutations don't normally happen. If we see mutations accumulating there that change genes and potentially change functions, then this is again a signal that that species might be in trouble and we should invest some more energy in trying to figure out what's going on. Wow. So without survey data, you can tell from the genes of one individual whether that species, the whole species might be in trouble. Yeah, it's really impressive. And, you know, it's not enormously powerful as an approach. I mean, it would be more powerful to go out and collect a lot of data or to do the survey data, but it is possible to use this as a first step in conservation triage. We can identify populations that we need to go and spend some time and money potentially to see if they really are in trouble. Yeah, it's really fascinating that this is this is possible from one genome. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Eleanor, this is a very human-centric question, um, but does this data give us new insight into ourselves? Does it does it tell us anything about what it means to be human? Well, I can tell you that the the press conference about the papers told me that we're very interested in that question. <laughs> Everybody wanted to know the answer <laughs> to that question. We're apparently very excited about ourselves. Yes. What is it that makes humans different? The first part of that answer would be not nearly as much as people think that we're different. You know, for the most part, humans are animals and do mostly the same things as all other animals do. But we had a few hints at things that might be different um, in humans. So we had two different papers that looked at the question of what's what's special about humans. There was one that looked for parts of the DNA that were basically constrained, meaning that they seem to be doing something important across all of the mammals, and then started changing much more quickly within the human lineage, meaning that for some reason that important part of the DNA was changing in humans such that it was different from the other animals. And then there was another paper that looked for things that were, again, constrained across all mammals, but then deleted just in the humans to try and figure out what it was doing. And both of those papers seem to point at changes in 
parts of the genome that regulate the expression of genes in our brains. And we don't know exactly what they're doing yet, but we could sort of guess that they're taking the mammalian brain, you know, that's, that's, you know, there's a lot of similarities across all of mammals, but somehow in humans, it's just tweaked a little bit, maybe so that we have more neurons or we have more connections between neurons, or maybe the sizes of different parts of the brain are changing. We don't know exactly what effect these changes are having yet, but now that we've found them, now that we can say that out of the 3 billion letters that are in the human genome or 3 billion bases that are in the human genome, these are the ones that seem to be having a functional impact on how things are regulated in human brains. We can start to go back and see what it is that, that yeah. they're actually doing. That's fascinating. You know, the, the, the space between figuring out that something is important and then figuring out what it does is it's a very long road. <laughs> it's it's yeah. quite impressive. But, but when you've got three billion bases that you're starting with, at least knowing that you're looking at the right thing at the beginning of all that, it makes the whole thing a lot easier. I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, Laura. Dr. Eleanor Carlson is Associate Professor in Bioinformatics and Integrative Biology at the UMass Chan Medical School and Director of Vertebrate Genomics at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. She's based in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Katie Moon is a postdoctoral researcher at UC Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz, California. Dr. Beth Shapiro is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz, California.